If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, questions surround the death of one of rock and roll's first innovators. Mick and Keith make the official decision and ax him from the band. Three weeks later, he is found dead in the swimming pool. And later, Ray Parker Jr. and Huey Lewis battle over Ghostbusters. You've got Huey Lewis thinking, that sounds an awful lot like I want a new drug in a different key. Finally, does President Trump send Secret Service agents after Eminem? Donald doesn't like when people say bad things about Ivanka. Now Marshall Mathers is on a list, the bad guy list. Quiet young gentleman of the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, one of music's most legendary groups. While Keith Richards and Mick Jagger have become iconic, the band's founder is a historical footnote. Brian Jones is one of the most important people in the history of rock and roll. Is he one of the original members? Yes, one of the original members. There would be no Rolling Stones without Brian Jones. We're sort of uh, developing in lots of different directions musically, I think. Brian was a musical genius. He played the recorder on Ruby Tuesday. Painted black, he played the sitar. They were the touches that Brian added to those songs, and that's what made those songs great. But in 1969, Jones is kicked out of the band. Weeks later, he becomes a founding father of the infamous 27 Club. They saw Jones at the bottom of the pool, and they pulled him out. But the actual cause remains very much in question. The death of Brian Jones has been surrounded by mystery and conspiracy theories. Is it an accident, a murder over money, or something even involving one of his bandmates? The coroner's report says death by misadventure. But is that really what happened? Or was Brian Jones murdered? Prodigy is a word too often overused. But in the case of Brian Jones, it pales to describe his musical genius. Brian Jones, he was born in a small town called Cheltenham, loved music and studied piano, which is why he had such a gift for melody. He could play anything he got his hands on. You give him a sitar, he learns how to play it. Harmonica, amazing. I played keyboard in Swiss for about the age of four. And then I studied uh, clarinet and saxophone from 13 until 19. But Jones isn't drawn to classical music. No, Brian Jones wants to play the blues. He loved Chicago blues, he loved the blues, and he just lived for that. James Brown, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, people like this are really my favorite artists. So he left home, took on the road, made a living almost as an itinerant musician in the provinces. Inspired and motivated, Jones seeks out bandmates in hopes of creating a new rhythm and blues group. And in 1962, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards answer the call. He then names the band, and a legend is born. I am Charlie Watts. I am the drummer. So Wyman, I play bass. I'm Brian Jones, a guitarist and harmonica player. Keith Richards, guitar. Mick Jagger, I sing. But there is one clear leader of the band, Brian Jones. If you look at the early photos of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones is always out front. 
he was the one that got all the fan mail. Mick was like very secondary in those mm -hmm. days. I mean, he was a great performer, but Brian was the, the, the attraction. Yeah. Brian Jones has taken the Rolling Stones to a certain level where they are a popular group and they attract the attention of major record labels. And they get a manager, Andrew Lug Oldham. The 19-year-old Andrew Lou Goldham at first seems like a godsend, scoring the Stones a lucrative record deal. But the new manager also has a larger vision, one that minimizes Brian Jones. He had the idea that, much like their sort of rivals, the Beatles, that they should be writing original songs and not just doing blues and R&B covers. Mick and Keith should be like John Lennon and Paul McCartney, a songwriting team. So suddenly, Brian is the odd man out. He wanted the band to have a certain sound. He was digging his heels in. And the other guy said, we got to expand. You know, rock and roll's happening, and, and we could be the best band in the world. Keith and Mick start writing amazing songs. Brian Jones is being cast aside a little bit more and more and more. He becomes very sort of isolated from the band. My ultimate aim in life was never to be a pop star. I enjoy it uh, with reservations, but um, I'm not really sort of satisfied either artistically or personally. Watching the band he started move further and further away from his vision. Brian retreats into darkness. Brian sort of fell into that trap of drink and drugs. Brian more and more became lost in that world. There's footage that you see of Brian in the studio in the later years where he was absolutely comatose. And when he did participate, I mean, the band was like turning off his amps so that they didn't have to hear what he was doing. One of the saddest stories is that he came into one of the sessions where he has to face Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and he goes into the studio and he says, what can I do? And Mick looks at him and says, I don't know, Brian, what can you do? And he was devastated. Making matters worse, Brian has also lost his girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg, to his bandmate, Keith Richards. Following a second drug arrest, there's concern he won't be able to get a work visa and tour with the band. It proves to be the final straw. In June 1969, he's kicked out of the band that he creates. On June 8th, 1969, Mick and Keith make the official decision and ax him from the band. Three weeks later, he is found dead in a swimming pool. Jones went for a swim with his Swedish girlfriend, Anna Bolin, and another friend, Mr. Frank Thoroughgood. After a time, Mr. Thoroughgood and the girl went back to the house. When they returned, they saw Jones at the bottom of the pool. At the time, nobody really questioned the fact that he accidentally drowned. Over the years, other theories emerge. One wild story even implicates Keith Richards over a fight for naming rights to the band. There's another theory that Keith went over to see Brian to ask him, say, hey, listen, hey, listen, we want the name The Rolling Stones. And he said no, and then they got heated, and that Keith actually murdered Brian. Coming up, 
a deep dive into the death of Brian Jones. A confession was made, and he said, it was me. I'm the one who took out Brian Jones. And later, is Eminem being threatened by President Trump? Is it true? Is he really being investigated? Does Donald Trump really know about this song? The Rolling Stones' recently fired band member, Brian Jones, is found dead in a swimming pool. Police report the incident as a death by misadventure, but other, more sinister theories soon circulate, including a wild tale implicating his guitar partner, Keith Richards. There were theories that Mick and Keith killed Brian. I don't buy that. They just wanted him out of the band. They didn't kill him. They just wanted him to go away. There's never been any evidence that Keith or any other member of the band has anything to do with Brian's tragic death. For a quarter century, it remains a closed case until a revelation surfaces from the last man to see Brian alive. Fresh evidence in a book just published throws new light on the rock star's death. Author Terry Rawlings claims that this man, Frank Thorogood, murdered Brian Jones after a row about money. Tom Keelock, who had been a driver for Brian, said that he went and was visiting Frank Thorogood, who was the builder who'd been doing some work on the property for Brian Jones, that a deathbed confession was made. And Frank Thorogood said, it was me. I'm the one who took out Brian Jones. Yeah, I went to see Frank in the hospital. He was very seriously ill. He looked very, very bad. And after a lengthy conversation, he said to me, I'll tell you something after all these years, but you must promise me not to say anything until I die. So well, what's that? So he turned around and says, uh, it was me to done Brian. Frank Thorogood was just working on Brian's house. Brian owed him some money. We just held him under the water. I believe it. Killed him. Despite Thorogood's confession, the police declined to reopen the case. Back then, whenever it was a rock star who had an untimely death, the police, they were like, oh, it's like one of those rock star drug addicts, whatever. And they didn't want to look into anything any further. To this day, the cause of death remains a mystery. Nevertheless, Brian Jones' life changes the face of rock and roll. The Rolling Stones. They are the greatest rock and roll band ever, and it wouldn't have started without Brian. After June 8, 1984, there was only one answer to the question, who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Ghostbusters became cinematic cultural phenomena. This is one of the biggest 80s moments. I ain't afraid of no and that song was not only played on rock radio, it was played on pop radio. It was played everywhere. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. But rock star Huey Lewis isn't calling Ghostbusters. Nope, he's calling his lawyers. Huey Lewis noticed that bass line. It's the exact bass line as, I want a new drug. I want a new drug. 
there some plagiarism going on here? Did Ray Parker Jr., who wrote Ghostbusters, steal it from Huey Lewis in the news? In 1984, filmmaker Ivan Reitman is struggling to finish his latest movie, the soon-to-be comedy classic, Ghostbusters. In the 80s, you had all of these huge pop singers and pop stars that were getting involved in creating original songs for movies. Just kind of another angle for producers to make these movies really, really successful. Now I gotta cut loose. Now you've got a movie like Ghostbusters that's going to be a blockbuster, so you need a big hit. So Reitman, hoping to copy that formula, is searching for a marquee name. After Fleetwood Mac star Lindsey Buckingham passes, he approaches Huey Lewis. Huey also declines. So now they're running out of time. They need a song in the can like yesterday. So they take it to Ray Parker Jr. Ray Parker Jr. says yes but he's got to come up with something big. I mean, is it true that you really did this? You wrote it and recorded it within, what, about 48 hours yeah. or something? Yeah, like I met Ivan Reitman and they said, well, we need this song kind of fast. <clears throat> and I figured, well, I guess they need 30 days from now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. He says, well, we, we need a song like in a few days. With a tight deadline looming, Ray Parker Jr. gets to work and the Ghostbusters theme is released the same day as the film. This song was incredibly lucrative. It spent several weeks at number one on the charts. It was inescapable. Everybody was singing the theme song. Who you gonna call? But Huey Lewis isn't singing along. Now, you've got Huey Lewis thinking, that sounds an awful lot like I want a new drug in a different key. He takes the matter to court. At that point, as an artist, you say, okay, enough's enough. This is clearly my song. I want a piece of the pie, too. Coming up. Does Huey Lewis bust Ray Parker Jr. for plagiarism? Ray Parker now sues him, and the lawsuits continue to go back and forth because this song was such a moneymaker. And later, did Trump send the Secret Service to investigate Eminem? When Eminem put the song out, people were wondering, is he really being investigated? In January 1984, Huey Lewis releases the hit song, I Want a New Drug. Just a few months later, Ray Parker Jr. releases Ghostbusters. The problem? Huey claims that Ray has ripped off his track, and he's taking the matter to court. When these kind of lawsuits happen where someone alleges that somebody stole their song, usually it's like an artist who's not famous, and it's an artist who's famous. And the non-famous artist is saying, you stole my song. That was not even an issue here, because the world had already heard, I want a new drug. So there was no doubt that Ray Parker Jr. had heard that song. My stepfather was Ray Parker Jr.'s attorney in that case, and he played him for me on a cassette, and I remember kind of going like, ooh. Yeah. 
I guess they do sound pretty similar. Huey, Ray, and the filmmakers settle out of court for an undisclosed amount, and both sides agree to never speak about the case. For almost 20 years, it seems like the matter is settled, until Huey Lewis resurrects the controversy. The offensive part was not so much that Ray Parker Jr. had ripped this song off. It was kind of symbolic of an industry that wants something. They wanted our wave, and they wanted to buy it. Once he breaks the non-disclosure agreement, Ray Parker now sues him, and the lawsuits continue to go back and forth because the song was such a moneymaker. Like the previous lawsuit, this settlement is never revealed. Then, in a 2004 article, director Ivan Reitman drops a bombshell. They sent Ray Parker Jr. a rough cut, and they said, we would like you to write something that would fit this montage of video. And we went ahead and put some music in there as a placeholder. Guess what song they put in there as a placeholder? I want a new drug. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Eminem has made a career of courting controversy, and no one has been exempt from the Eight Mile Rapper's wrath. Mariah Carey. But in 2017, Slim Shady creates rap beef with the president. Trump, when it comes to giving a you're stingy as I am. At one point, he told his fans, if you support Trump, you no longer support me. And then he raps about putting Ivanka Trump in his Trump. Ivanka Trump in the trunk of my car. Does Eminem provoke Trump? And does the president send Secret Service after the rapper? Eminem fires the first shots of this surprising battle at the 2017 BET Awards. What we got in office now's a kamikaze that'll probably cause a nuclear holocaust. And he's just dissing Trump. He calls him a racist. He even goes so far as giving his fans an ultimatum. And any fan of mine who's a supporter of his, I'm drawing in the sand a line you're either for or against. The diatribe sends social media into a frenzy, but crickets from the outspoken president. And Slim Shady is just getting warmed up. On a song called Framed, he raps about putting Ivanka Trump in his trunk, which immediately sends up red flags. What dog have a is Ivanka Trump in the trunk of my car? Donald doesn't like when people say bad things about Ivanka. Now Marshall Mathers is on a list, the bad guy list. But still nothing publicly from the Oval Office. A year later, Eminem releases the surprise album, Kamikaze. On its first track, the rapper makes a shocking claim. Cause Agent Orange just sent the Secret Service to meet in person to see if I really think of hurting him. When Eminem put the song out, it grabbed headlines and people were wondering, is it true? Is he really being investigated? Does Donald Trump really know about this song? Coming up, does Trump really send agents to interrogate the Eight Mile Rapper? Did the Secret Service really come to your house after that? It's 2018. Eminem has taken numerous shots at Donald Trump. And according to the rapper, the president has sent federal agents to his home. It's not that crazy. For one, that's actually the Secret Service's job. If someone threatens the president to investigate it, 
Did the Secret Service really come to your house after that? They came to my studio, yeah. Okay. And they asked, they had, they were just basically asking me questions about my lyrics to see what the intent was behind them. Mm -hmm. And if I was making a actual threat or just expressing myself. But is this simple bluster from Slim Shady? Social media watchdogs are on the prowl. BuzzFeed, through a Freedom of Information Act request, they find out that, yes, in fact, the Secret Service did meet with Eminem. But according to the documents, it's not Trump, but an unlikely news source that notifies the White House. TMZ, of all places, actually dropped a dime <laughs> on Eminem. And basically was like, are you guys investigating this? Did TMZ actually make news so they have something to report on? The documents were so heavily redacted. It's like, why would they be so redacted? To this day, there is no acknowledgement from the White House that this secret meeting takes place. But Eminem has since backed down. So who wins this showdown? I feel that Eminem stopped, not because he felt threatened, but probably because it was mission accomplished for him. I freestyle flowed enough to make you react. My job is done. A rolling stone possibly murdered. A battle for the theme of Ghostbusters. And a rap war with the White House. They're all music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.